just as Andrew prayed for a piece of paper or electronic device that is on, uh, that is quite um, well received. <laughs> I only discovered last night as I went to print this, I'd run out of ink. And so I'm using which could potentially be a very glitchy iPad. I was telling Mark, it was a couple of years ago, or quite a few years ago, because Samuel was only an infant, this very same iPad I was using to lead the service, and it was having bugs. And just as I was about to go up to the front to share something that was on it, it suddenly jumped onto a CBeebies um, game. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, so thank you for that prayer. It's <laughs> much appreciated. <laughs> Anyway, this morning, it marks the beginning of a new series for us as a church. Some of you may remember, it probably will be a couple of years ago, we did a study in 1 Corinthians. Well, we're continuing on, and then we're going to start a study in 2 Corinthians. Just to give you a little bit of background to all that itself, first of all, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians um, whilst he was in Macedonia around AD 55. It was just, it was probably about a year or so after he'd written 1 Corinthians. And we believe it's probably the fourth letter in the correspondence that went back and forth from this church. The other two letters are gone, they're lost. Well, some scholars might think that uh, chapters 10 to 13 might be an add on from one of those previous letters, but there's also different ideas. But it comes just as Paul is finishing his uh, three year journey his ministry in Ephesus. He's visited the churches in Macedonia, and he's now planning on making his way to Corinth itself. But whilst he's still in Macedonia, he meets Titus, one of his fellow co-workers in Christ, who arrives uh, newly from Corinth with the letter, which is second, um, sorry, the letter that Paul is now responding to through Second Corinthians. You know, and I think... For Paul, that letter that he received from Titus will be like the one that some of our students will be feel like when they've finished their exams and come through the post. <laughs> has their labors, has their trials been successful? Because it has been a trialing time for Paul. This letter is going to tell him as to whether the painful visits, the stern letters that's been exchanged have been successful or not. And thankfully, the letter that he received from Titus was good news. So largely, when we will find through the largest, the greater body of 2 Corinthians is really the makeup letter now. You know, it's the, the wooing and the coming back together. Oh, we're still in love. <laughs> kind of feeling about it. Because, you know, of all the churches that Paul was a father to, the church in Corinth was the I think I wanted to describe it. <laughs> it was the prodigal son of all churches. You know, it was wayward. It was easily led. It was contentious within itself, but also with Paul himself. The things that were gone in the church, you wouldn't believe. You know, there was sexual immorality. There was the abuse of spiritual gifts. There were lawsuits among the people themselves who called themselves this church. And there was even resentment against Paul himself and his apostolic ministry and authority. But yet, Paul clung on. He clung on, and he won through by the grace of God. 
And so what we see in 2 Corinthians, really they're piecing together of a very fragile community. They've suffered a lot of blows. As has Paul himself, he suffered personally, relationally, through the trials of this. You know, and the funny thing is, as you see as we go through 2 Corinthians, that the main theme uh, of this, this whole letter is of the relationship between suffering and the power of the Spirit in Paul's life and the church's life, and as we'll find as we go through it, our life as well. So in a sense, 2 Corinthians is the beginning of a new journey for this community, for Paul, but I dare say even for us as well. Not in an academic sense for us, but also as much as it meant to them, what it means to be the people of God, the community of God, what it means for the will of God to be exercised in our lives, and what, it, what we are to one another as well. I was speaking to James, James Juice, and you're familiar with James. And there was an idea that, you know, what the Corinthians experienced, though in a very volatile and a very dynamic way, in some sense, these are the same tensions that we might experience in life as a congregation, as the church of God, that we have experienced, are experiencing, and I dare say might even experience as well. As we journey together as Catalyst Church, you know, there will be at times robust conversations that need to be had. But in that, there'll be new discoveries. We'll discover along the way our relationship with one another, how we relate to one another, who we are, what we are, but also our relationship with God our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. As I'm saying that and talking about journeys, Samuel, I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but I'll share it. Because it is funny, but it was before you were born, thankfully. Um, me and my wife, Jude, were in the car, uh, coming back from somewhere. And to call it a robust conversation would be an understatement. It was really an argument. You know, and my reaction was, I'm getting at the car. And I did, whilst it was still moving. <laughs> Thankfully, she was the one driving. <laughs> it, it sounds rather dramatic. It wasn't the Hollywood stuff. We were just driving through the residential streets of Aberdeen. But it could have been the end of me, at least. <laughs> but it wasn't. Because, you know, grace, truth, and love drew me back in, buckled in, and we continued on our journey. And so for you, I want to encourage you to buckle yourself in. Make yourself comfortable in 2 Corinthians, because we are going to go on a journey with this new, this new uh, study. And we're going to go places we've never been before. It's going to raise questions, conversations, hopefully not arguments, but we can converse together and find ourselves moving further and faster towards our goal. Christ Jesus. So with that, I'm going to read the passage. And it's a very short passage. I'm reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. And it reads this. I think it will come on. Yeah, it's there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Timothy, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Asia, oh, sorry, Achaia, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Amen. <laughs> you know, at first glance, that doesn't sound like a lot of content, does it? Reading you the addressee and the, of a letter. You don't, I mean, if we read the start of a letter and just read the address, 
and open dreams, you'd be thinking, tell me more, I want, I want to read more. But as you know, and as I know, Scripture doesn't often have to say an awful lot to communicate something to us. You know, and as I was reflecting that, I was reminded of, you know, the shortest sentence in the English translation of the Bible? It's Jesus wept. You know, and we can reflect on that for a lifetime, couldn't we? So I think God's got a lot to say to us just in those couple of verses this morning. And so I've called this the will of God, the people of God, and the grace of God. So first of all, the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You know, this is more than a nicety. It's more than just, hi, it's me, Paul, writing to you. He's saying something more in this. He's bringing in what he is and what he does. Because it's the will of God. It's the will of God. It's the desire of God. He's conscious of the plans and the purposes that God has revealed to him. And that Jesus has chosen him to be burdened for this task. You know, in our current political climate, Theresa May was chosen for a task. But it doesn't always come with accolades and celebrations. <laughs> and you know, and Paul uses this way of introducing, and he's not unique in it. Yeah, he's following the conventions of his day, but he's bringing with him the weight and the responsibility that has been confirmed to him. He's an apostle, not by his own will, but by God's will. And he wasn't any exception in that. Peter, James, and John, and Jude, they all use a similar thing in their introductions to their letters. They all extended their name to encapsulate something of what they were all about, who they were for, and what they were for. It's their calling and their responsibility in the church. You know, the funny thing is, when we often see titles following somebody's name, our first instance, I think it's an appeal to vanity or to prestige or um, privilege. But it was never for that, with apostles. It never was. They always came as the humble servants, carrying authority that wasn't their own, but it was always pointed towards the one who sent them. You know, one of our members at our site in, in Barueri, his name is George MacDonald, and I find myself using George at times as an illustration, because to me, he's just George MacDonald. But in his job, if you want to call it that, he's the chief superintendent. He's the area commander of Police Scotland for our highlands and islands. That's quite a, a heavy role. Thankfully, I just know George as George. <laughs> but if they ever came to me as the chief superintendent and area commander of the Police Scotland Highlands and Islands, I think I would be breaking out in a sweat. <laughs> Fortunately, he has never had to do that. But if he did, I would need to recognize it for what it is. Because he carries an authority and a responsibility. It's not intrinsic to himself, but it's what's been conferred to him. And that is the same with the apostles as well. You know, the apostles, they occupied a unique position in the church. In a sense, it was never to be repeated. Paul says of himself, and last of all, he appeared also to me, referring to the Damascus Road experience when he met Jesus, as to one of untimely birth. 
for I am the least of the apostles, and that I'm worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, he was appointed, he was called, and that in itself should be a little glimmer of hope for each of us as well. Whatever we find ourselves, he don't qualify you, he qualifies you. So you don't have to look at some morality measure of yourself. He appoints us. So when we read the, the letters of Paul, of Peter, when we read the, 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 the Gospels, the prophets, we need to revere them. Don't dismiss them. Because they come with an authority of the one who sent them. We all know that the apostles had a tough time. Whether it's being thrown out of the temple. <laughs> Where they've been ostracized by their community, rejected, beaten, even killed because of their faith in Christ. And you know, the most recent events in Sri Lanka just remind us it hasn't got any easier. You know, despite their seemingly prominent role in the church, they did suffer a whole lot of grief. You know, and this might sound like a self interesting appeal for the likes of myself or for Julie and Mark, or for all the site pastors, or the CLT. But it's not. We all know it's not our church, not my church. It's not Mark or Julie's church. It is Jesus' church. But by the grace of God, they've been appointed for the role that they've been given. And, you know, we could ask ourselves, if it had been us, if Paul had been our pastor, would we have been any kinder to him? Well, we'd all love to say, yes, Paul would have found, a, found it nice here. <laughs> but we all know within ourselves that sometimes there arises within us a niggle, a frustration, and it's so easy to take it out on a want, <laughs> or even those we, we don't often see. But I want to remind us this morning, you know, so often the contentions that arise within a church could be avoided. If we first went to the will of God, if every party went and desired the, the will and the, the purposes of God rather than their own, and we did it together, we might avoid a lot of grief. And I don't think it's too demonstrous to say that Mark and Julie love you. I'm sure you probably know that already. But the CLT love you as well. Chuck and Tarn love you. Because there is a oneness in that that our heart's desire is to see every one of you grow in faith. It's to see you mature in your faith and your walk with Christ. Seeing your gifts rise to the surface. And seeing the will of God begin to operate in your sphere, where, where you operate in. Also know that fulfilling the word of God is really an easy task. You will be met with contention. Wherever it is. And sometimes you will meet with contention as much within as without. And it's a sure thing. It's going to happen one way or another. So that might not sound much like an encouragement. <laughs> but knowing that it's there and it's stable and it's part of the, the experience of God's people. Uh, I'd, I'd say suck it up, but that doesn't sound very nice, does it? <laughs> I don't mean it like that. You know you're in the right place when you experience 
frustration and suffering because you think you're doing the will of God. Take comfort in it. Because if they rejected Christ, don't take offense if somebody takes offense at you. Yeah? You know, the question surrounding the whole will of God, I know I've talked mostly around about Paul's experiences and he was appointed by an apostle. But you know something? Wherever you operate, you've been called by the will of God to operate in that sphere, whatever it might be. It might be industry, it might be education, it might be leisure, it may be at home, it may be in your community. But God has a will and a purpose and a plan for you in that. And you might experience the frustrations of some form of suffering. Being rejected, I like you, but I don't like your, your, your Christianity, I don't like your faith. It will, elements of that will bubble to the surface sometimes. I'm just, I'm just preparing you, encouraging you on that. Don't run away. Don't say, oh, this is too hard. It is hard. But in our suffering, God is there. He's with you. And you will come through. Lean on him. But maybe it's a question as well for you today as well. If you are called as much as he is, do you know where the will of God is? What your purpose is? What you, what you are for? In your industry, in your leisure, in your, in your community, in your education, whatever sphere it is you operate, do you know what it is? Maybe this morning is the time to ask that question then, if you're unsure. The people of God. Paul wrote to the church of God in Corinth, together with all these holy people throughout Achaia. Just pause and just reflect for a moment on who Paul is addressing. The church of God, together with all his holy people. If Paul was a man under authority and not his own, then neither are we. We are God's possession. We collectively are the church of God. You know, it's easy sometimes to define ourselves by our denomination or our culture or our nationality. But you know, these things are transient. They will fade away. They will be gone at some point. And what is left is who we are in Christ. The church of God. All his holy people. Paul is speaking about the Corinthians, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about us as well. We are a people not our own. We were bought at a price, a people of God's possession. And we're not slaves to our current culture, not driven by a cultural current, but rather we operate in a different stream. We're called to operate in a different stream, almost a, a, a countercultural lifestyle at times. It opposes the way everything else seems to go, and it can be difficult. But that's what it is to belong to the kingdom of God. Our DNA, our culture, our character, the inward life affecting the outward transforming is the living presence of Jesus in us, in our inward beings. He has us, but we have him. Paul is reminding his readers then and now who we are. The use of the word church is more than just a gathering of people. You know, the Greek word ecclesia 
Paul would be rethinking this and remembering the Greek word and the, the Septuagint, the Old Testament in the Greek form, and how it was a call of the summoning of the, the Israelites coming together under the word of God, to hear the word of God, to be transformed by the word of God, to live their lives outwardly, looking like the people of God. And the thing that sometimes is so obvious, but yet we, we, we miss, the, miss the wood for the trees, is a singular oneness in there. We are one. But yet it's one of the truths that the church is still struggling with today, isn't it, at times? We forget. We're so obsessed with our individuality that we forget that we are part of something actually bigger than ourselves. You are the church. We are the church in Inverurie. Together we are the church. The Vineyard Movement, we are the church. The Vineyard Movement and the Church of Scotland and every other denomination you can think of. We are the church. Universally. We are one. You know, when everything else disappears, this is the thing that will continue on into eternity. A oneness. And it is there it will be seen for the beautiful thing that it actually is. We have it almost like a rough diamond at the moment. But it's there nonetheless. And for our part is to polish it up <laughs> and do our part as much as we can to bring that oneness to the forefront of everything that we do. We belong to God. We're holy. You're holy. That's a word that some people kind of squirm at when they hear these days. You know, we've kind of attached to it, or other people have attached to it, connotations and ideas. Holy, well, don't use that when you speak about me. Use something else a little bit intense. <laughs> if you put aside everything or the baggage that other people have attached to it, it singularly means that you are a people that have been set apart for a special purpose and for a very special person. You are not your own. You belong to someone. You know, when you think about the Old Testament, the old temple, the fabric, the, the substance of the stones that was used in the temple wasn't any different from the stones in the surrounding countryside of Israel, was it? The fabric, that the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else, it wasn't anything intrinsic different in that fabric that was different from every other piece of fabric in Israel. The pots and pans, the utensils they used in the temple, they weren't any different. They weren't made from anything different or special from every other pots and pans <laughs> in the surrounding region. Their uniqueness was found in what they were for and who they belonged to. And that was the same about each and every one of us this morning as well. You are a holy people. You know, it was the, the Apostle Peter wrote, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a special house to be a, be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are unique. You are unique. Not by an intrinsic value in yourself, but because... God has taken you and taken you for himself. Your purpose and what you're for is so different from the rest of the world. Embrace it. Delight in it. 
You know, we belong to God. We belong to one another. You know, Paul and all the saints that have gone before, they belong to us, but we belong to them. The saints that are yet to come, they belong to us and we belong to them as well. And together, we are the holy people of God. We are the church of God. Are you living with that conscious awareness that you are part of something greater than yourself? That you are unique, but you are intrinsically part of something far more wonderful than you can ever imagine. Finally, the grace of God. Paul writes, The grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, here in verse 2, we're drawn back to the nucleus, the center of everything that we are. You know, we were born out of grace. Everything that is here was born out of grace. The grace of God operating. The grace of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this is the route that we are called to travel. You know, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who I said, I might have said before, he's the author and perfecter of our faith. But we're not following a geographic route, <laughs> but it's an attitude of the will, of the heart, and of the mind. Grace is like the compass that points us in the right direction and it helps us to stay on route. And another way you could describe it is the oil in the engine that ensures that all the parts don't seize up. Avoiding the pieces grinding together causing the whole engine to blow up <laughs> and bring our journey to a stop. I want to throw it out to you this morning. Have you experienced the grace of God in your life in some shape or form? You know, I'm, I'm, I wager that if you're here, that you probably have. You probably have. And fundamentally, remember that grace that came to you by no means of your own. The righteous died for the unrighteous, didn't they? Jesus died for us whilst we were yet sinners. He loved us first before we loved him. That's amazing grace, isn't it? And that's the grace that we draw from. That's the grace that we live under. But it's not a one-off thing. We keep drawing from it. Keep drinking from it. Like a fountain. You know, just as fresh and as fresh pure water is to the body, so is grace to the inward pe person as it affects the outward person. You know, they say that you are what you eat, don't they? Well, I want to say this morning, you are what you drink as well. Continue to drink deeply from the grace of God. Yes, if you find yourself dry and wandering, go back to that place where you first received it and receive it again and again. It doesn't dry up. Keep drawing from the grace of Christ. Because you know, as you continue to draw upon grace, it's going to have an outward transformation. Certainly an inward one to begin with. But it's going to have an outward one whereby you yourself will become a fountain of grace. You know, we never fail to know. We would never know the effect of one gracious word to someone in the course of a morning might have on the rest of their week. It's amazing. I guess that's why it's such a great hymn. Amazing grace. But you can affect grace in somebody's life. That will bring about a transformation in the course of their week. 
I want to read to you a story. It's an old story, but I, I believe it's a true one. And it illustrates it lovely. Let me just read it to you. Some of you will be familiar with Charles Spurgeon, who was credited as perhaps the greatest preacher of the 19th century. But there were many great preachers. And there was uh, another one at the same time. His name was Joseph Parker. And they both had churches in London in the 19th century. And apparently, on occasion, Parker had commented on the poor condition of the children that were being admitted to Spurgeon's orphanages. It was meant as a, as a, as a, what's the word? A compliment. A compliment to Spurgeon that, you know, he was taking in these poor wretches and transforming their lives. But as you know, as it is through Chinese whispers, the church, whatever you want to call it, it came, it was reported to Spurgeon that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself. And so that morning, Spurgeon blasted Parker the next week from the pulpit. The attack was printed in the newspaper, and it became the talk of the town. People flocked to Parker's church the next Sunday to hear his rebuttal. And this is what he said. I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today. And this is the Sunday they use to take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here instead. The crowd was delighted. The ushers had to empty the collection plate three times. And later that week, there was a knock at Parker's study. It was Spurgeon. And this is what he said. You know, Parker... You have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserved. You have given me what I needed. It's lovely, isn't it? You know, and it would be lovely if we didn't have to draw stories from the 19th century <laughs> to illustrate that, wouldn't it? That's something that each and every one of us is capable of. Practicing grace and one another. For a long time, it had been sorely lacking in the church in Corinth, and it almost destroyed it. We don't want to ever want to go there. We want to be a church that's recognized as a grace-filled church, a grace that never runs out, that is always pouring over, pouring over on one another, each other, but going beyond ourselves as well, affecting our communities that we operate in. I want to be a, an encouragement this morning. Can you imagine what grace can achieve? You might, but I bet there's so much more that you can't imagine, that we don't know. But the Lord does. And he wants us to be a church, a gracious, loving church. Keep practicing. Keep drawn from grace. Keep drawn from it. Because that's the only way you can administer it. Keep pouring it out. And you're going to do so many wonders in this community. You really will. Keep drawing from the one who's gracious to us. Let's stand.